are free to go to Gospel Project, where I'm sure you'll do more singing and jumping and dancing, thanks to those who are uh, leading. Well, I hope you brought a sack lunch with you. I've not preached in six weeks, so we're going to be here for a while. If you would uh, pull out a Bible, please, and turn with me to uh, Ephesians 2. That's where we'll be uh, this morning in uh, Ephesians 2. We're in about halfway through a series this summer that we're calling Solas. And if you haven't been with us, just a brief introduction of what that is. Uh, Solas is Latin for alone. And in the 1500s, God brought about a great reformation to the church. It was nothing less than the recovery of the gospel that in many ways had been lost. And this uh, Reformation was marked by five theological convictions, many more, but five that have been come, come to be known as the five solas. And in English, here they are, they'll be on the screen behind me, they go this way, that people are saved by grace alone, which is what we'll talk about today, through faith alone, which is next week, in Christ alone, which is what John Mead talked about last week, according to Scripture alone, which Tad did a great job referring to two weeks ago, and then for God's glory alone. These five ideas really encapsulate much of what the Bible teaches, but especially what it teaches about how someone can be made right with God. So people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And to try and help us remember these things, we've got a couple of things we're giving away. Uh, this week, we've got a moleskin journal with those five on the front in pretty letters. So all the dudes are going to be jumping for joy. But Jenny was first. So Jenny, come on up. Enjoy. Yep. So Ephesians 2 and Robert Clay a long-time member here, one of our deacons, is going to come read for us. What page are you on in this guy? In this guy. Oh, you haven't actually turned to it in that guy. He's got a cheater. Some cheaters. Six, seven, four. Six, seven, four. Six, All right, seven, brother. Four. You needed bigger font, huh? I needed bigger font. Yeah. I hear that happens as we age. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Thank you, brother. Uh, he was a young man with a bright future, born to, uh, not Robert, of course. <laughs> Born to uh, a copper miner, uh, his dad was a blue-collar worker, and early on he decided he wanted a better life for his son. So he put him on a path to be uh, a lawyer. At 21, this young man had already earned his undergrad and his Master of Arts. No pressure, students. By that same year... That same year, he earned his master's. He got so scared in a storm that he thought he would die. And in a moment of panic, he cried out that he would become a monk if God would save him from this storm. Well, he survived, and uh, two weeks later, he fulfilled that pledge, gave up a life of law in order to join a monastery. That's quite a change, isn't it? His dad was so disappointed in him, but he believed that this would be the place, the monastery, in which he would earn peace with God. Friends, this young man I'm talking about was bothered by something that very few in our time are bothered by. He was troubled by the question, how can sinful people be made right with a holy God. This was what consumed him. How can sinful people be made right with God? To put that a different way, this young man understood that he was the rightful recipient of God's wrath. And so he set about in everything he did to try and fix that. Becoming a monk in his day was the super spiritual way of trying to earn the favor of God. He wrote years later of this experience, if I could believe that God was if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. This young monk was known to lay on hard stone floors at night to keep himself awake in prayer. He would fast often for days at a time. He consumed himself with what the church of his day taught were the good works that would earn you acceptance with God. Things like poverty and vigils and mortification, sacraments. He'd go entire months in the winter without using a blanket. That somehow making yourself uncomfortable and life harder would show that you prize the next world better than this one. He even made a pilgrimage to Rome to fix his doubts and fears by going to the Vatican itself. And it was believed if you would climb this certain set of stairs on your hands and knees, kissing each step as you went, 
praying both for yourself and for your family in purgatory, then God would be pleased. But not even Rome would cleanse this young man's conscience. And so he pressed on, earned a doctorate in theology, took over the chair at a university as a Bible preacher, and took a vow to be a priest. Everything he was told to do to gain peace with God, he did. But nothing worked. None of these things worked. He was like a cancer patient going for his weekly dose of chemotherapy, getting sicker and sicker and sicker. But the chemo was not killing the cancer. It was simply making him worse. This man understood the first three verses that Robert read to us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He probably grasped them more than many of us have experientially. Notice the way the text describes the condition of every single person who has ever lived. It says in verse 1 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. In verse 2, that we're enslaved to the evil of the world. In verse 2, it says that we're enslaved to Satan. Verse 3, it says that we're enslaved to uncontrollable sinful desires. The picture here is bleak, isn't it? Really, what Paul is getting at, the author, is that all human beings, apart from God, are hopeless and helpless. That morally speaking, before a holy God, we are all hopeless and helpless. That our wills are bound to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, don't misunderstand me, though. Uh, that doesn't mean everyone is as bad as they could be. We, we each have the potential to get worse. Nor does that mean that everyone's hopelessness and helplessness is readily seen and felt. Uh, many people without Christ are ethical, moral, good neighbors, right? And in some ways, it seems as though some without Christ live good lives. So this is not to say that everyone's hopelessness and helplessness is obvious. Many people without Christ appear to be doing quite well. But according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, all the kindness and ethical uprightness somebody can muster doesn't change what's on the inside. Good religious ethical behavior does not earn one right standing with God. There were people in Jesus' day that if you looked at them, appeared to have it all together. They followed the religious rules. They were good citizens. They paid their taxes. They looked like good, godly people. But Jesus spoke the most harshly to them. Here's one example in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Any sentence starting with woe to you, you know is not going to be followed by happy thoughts. Jesus is getting at your, your outward behavior can look and even in many ways be right, but it doesn't fix what's on the inside. You see, our plight in this world is one in which we are born spiritually dead, but physically alive. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Non-Christians here today, friends, have you come to the point of recognition that you are hopeless and helpless? Are you there? Do you see it? Have you come to recognize honestly that there are evil, destructive thoughts inside of you that no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to get away from? The kinds of thoughts you have never said out loud. Have you experienced your inability to really change? Do you find that good things seem to take control of you and become consuming things? Do you find yourself drowning your condemning conscience with the noise of Spotify or Netflix? Well, if so, I hope you'll listen to this young man that I talked about in our introduction. Now, an important question to ask at this point of this really encouraging sermon is how did we get this way? If Ephesians 2 is correct, if the real plight of people apart from God is that we are hopeless and helpless, then how did we end up here? Well, verse 3, the latter half answers that question. It says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And every parent in the room breathes a deep sigh of relief. It's not nurture. It's nature. That we are born spiritually dead, but physically alive. And then, of course, we all choose to willingly follow those sinful desires that we have. You see, by nature, we are separated from God and thus worthy of his wrath. So contrary to popular opinion, something we really need to hear and to know today is that our great need is not for renovation. Our great need is not for better self-esteem. We don't merely need moral improvement or more education or different government. Friends, those kinds of changes are only skin deep. What, what we need is something from the inside out. What we need is resurrection. And only Christ can bring that. You see, friends, we're people not just spiritually sick, but rather spiritually dead. We've all been living in a morgue. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Now, quick before we move on, I, I am well aware that for some of us, this whole idea of Ephesians 2 and its deadness that it is portraying to us, I'm well aware that for many of us, this may be outrageous and offensive. 
You don't have to put your hand up and say, yes, that's me. I don't buy any of that. But you're no doubt here, which we are immensely pleased about. Thank you. We swim in a culture that prizes individual freedom among literally everything else. That is our deepest cultural value. And we think of freedom as the ability to choose right from wrong and to pursue then whatever it is we want to pursue. So we say it in ways like, look within, be true to yourself, be whatever you want to be, as long as you're consistent with your own desires. Right? Does that sound familiar? You've forgotten how to be responsive. This, I've lived a lot of places, and nowhere is this cultural value as strong as it is here in Phoenix, Arizona, that we are the autonomous self, that we do what we want and we're free to do so. But Ephesians chapter 2 paints a different picture. It says instead that we're not people in freedom, that we're people in bondage, that we're people ruled by our passions. And we can't change that. And so if that's uh, offensive to you or perhaps just a different way of thinking, I would ask you to consider, is that not a better explanation for the world in which we live? When we look around and see the way in which we live and people around us live, isn't that a better solution? to see that we are, in fact, not free. We are dead in our sins. Maybe an example would help. Uh, some of us in the room would be familiar with a man named Ed Sheeran. Uh, Ed is one of the most popular pop artists today. He is 26 years old and is already a worldwide sensation. Now, whether you like the guy or not, he is unbelievably talented. Just incredible. Can fill uh, stadiums with just himself and his guitar and a little kickboard. I don't know what that's called. Ed has already won two Grammys. And listen to a little bit about his life. He recently took an entire year off of work just to travel. Can you imagine? A year? No work. Iceland, Australia, Africa, Japan. Just playing for an entire year. He was watching a James Bond film a while back and made a passing comment to some buddies about how he liked the car James Bond was driving. So they said, well, why don't you get one? It was an Aston Martin. It was cost $200,000. So literally, in the middle of the movie, he picked up a phone, called the nearest dealership, and said, I'd like one. Went and picked it up. This guy seems to have everything going for him. Everything. 26, one of the most popular artists, has already sold 20 million records. I think if he just made $1 from every record, makes more, of course, but that's a lot of money, isn't it? But in an interview with Megyn Kelly a few days ago, Ed said these words, all performers crave, really crave, is attention. 
Of course I'm insecure. All successful people are overly insecure. If there's somebody that ought to know, I have the approval of people. It, it's an artist who at 26, because so many people have purchased his records, can call and buy a $200,000 car on a whim. But this guy is so insecure, he doesn't own a cell phone. And he's deleted his Twitter account because he can't handle people saying negative things about him. If the things of the world could provide what the soul most needs, Ed Sheeran would be the happiest man on the planet. But this week, instead, he's talking about his insecurities. Isn't Ephesians 2 a better understanding of life? We're not free. We're bound in sin. Hopeless and helpless, just like we are. Now look at verse 4. Some of you are wishing I did not come back. Verse 4, let me read a couple of verses for us. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and seated us up with him and raised us up in the heavenly places in Christ. There are perhaps no more precious words in the English language than the first two of those verses. But God, but God, but God, don't miss the contrast. Be, because God acted on our behalf, brothers and sisters, notice the difference between verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. We were dead, but God so now we're alive. We were enslaved, but God. So now we're victorious in the power of the risen Christ. We were separated from God, but God. Now we are united to Him. We were under God's wrath, but God. Now we're wrapped in His love. Where is Dre when we need him? <laughs> Yelling, shouting, this is great news. But God. Now what is all of this? Well, in a word, it's grace. Sola gratia. Grace alone. It's that little phrase in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Sola gratia, grace alone. Now, what is grace? Well, let's ask two questions about it. First, obvious, what is grace? And then second, what does grace do? 
So in our remaining time, I just want to try to answer those two questions. What is grace beyond what you say at a meal? And what does grace do? First, what is grace? Well, grace, friends, is the response of God to the sins of His people. It's, it's God's sheer kindness. Grace is the unearned, undeserved favor of God towards people who have rejected Him. Grace is, as we sang, amazing. Grace is the unearned, undeserved favor of God. What is God really like? What is the Father's disposition toward you? When, when God the Father thinks about you, Christian, what does He think? What is His attitude toward you? Well, grace is the answer. Grace shows us, declares to us, what God thinks about when He thinks about us. And that's great news. Now, what does God's grace do? Well, God uses grace to exert His power. And this will be the most complicated part of this message. So hang with me a couple of minutes and let me try to explain a, a complex theological concept. It's called being united with Christ or union with Christ. How is it that someone is saved? How is a person who was dead made alive? How is it that a person who was separated from God can be united to Him? How is it that someone who deserved God's wrath can come to be a person who has God's favor? Well, grace is the answer to all those questions. But how does that work? There are several engineers in the room, and this church tends to have the personality of, of a thinker, of an engineer. So let me see if I can try to explain this as these verses tell us. Somehow, by God's miraculous power, using grace through faith, which we'll talk about next week, when someone moves from death to life, which is a way of saying when they become a Christian, then somehow you travel back to Golgotha, to a hill outside of Jerusalem. And as Christ hung on the cross, dying in place of sinners, then you are united to Him. So much so that when He died, then that part of you that deserved eternal separation from God, that part of you that's dead in sin, is united to Christ and dies with Christ. Now, beyond Ephesians 2 telling us that, how does that happen? I don't know. That's a miraculous thing. But it tells us that that's what takes place. So that when Christ died, who else died? You, you died. And then, several days later, Jesus miraculously rose from the dead. Now, what's all that about? Well, the resurrection proves that the death of Christ satisfied the judgment of God. It, it proves that the sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. It proves that everything Jesus said and did was true. And not only that, when 
Jesus rose from the dead, then who else rose? This isn't rocket science. You rose, Christian. This is what's called union with Christ, being united with Christ. One of the books I read on my sabbatical is about this topic. And the author pointed something out that uh, I hadn't ever really thought about before. Uh, Paul, so the author of the majority of books in the New Testament, doesn't call us Christians. Have you ever noticed that? As best I can tell, there's not a single place Paul says of you, believer, that you are a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true. It is. But that's not his chosen descriptor from, for somebody who's following Christ. His chosen phrase is, bless you, is in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. He says it dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. What does in Christ mean? It, it means when Christ died, you were placed into him and you died too. And when Christ rose, you rose too. In Christ. Now, this is such a revolutionary concept that when God used Paul to write the letter of Ephesians, he had to make up words to describe it. Literally words that did not exist. So look at verse 5. There's this phrase that God made us alive together with Christ. You see that? Made us alive together with Christ. And then in verse 6, he raised us up with him. And then later in verse 6, he seated us with him. All three of those are words that did not exist prior to them being written by Paul. And they are nowhere in ancient literature apart from Christian writings. They're taking a term and then adding a prefix to it that's with. Such a revolutionary concept, Paul had to coin terms. That's how precious being united to Christ is. It changes everything. The young man I talked about in our introduction lived in a period of time in which the majority of churches taught that God would bestow His grace upon you after you did your best. And so, literally, the way it was thought of is you muster up the very best that's in you, and then God will give you grace. And you can continue in that grace as you practice the sacraments, because it's through those seven things that God will give you continued grace. But if you quit doing your best, then you no longer have grace. But Martin Luther, this man we've been discussing, knew his sin too well. And so he found that system bankrupt. He found it unable to satisfy his conscience. And so it wasn't until years later, as the chair of religion in a university, as a priest, 
studying the book of Romans to teach it to a class, that he actually came to see what grace is and was saved. Luther put it like this, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. You read that again. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Isn't that beautiful? Friend, you don't muster up what is good in you in order to have the love of God. Instead, the grace of God comes to you and the love of God then recreates in you what is pleasing to him. That's grace. Another book I read on my sabbatical uses this phrase. It's gross, but you're going to remember it. Grace lances the boil of merit. Your merit is a disgusting, pus-filled boil. And grace comes along and lances it in order that you could be healed. Brothers and sisters, you brought nothing to God but sin. God brought everything else. And His grace is so marvelous, it requires no goodness, no merit, no effort, no works on our part. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So non-Christian, let me circle back around to you for a moment. Do you believe in the grace of God? Does, does what I'm saying today make sense? Not, of course, because I'm saying it, but because it's in the book. And do you believe this message? Do you believe that Christ died and rose again for you? If so, then come to Christ. Because the, the evidence that it's true is that you believe it. Come to Christ because Christ is already coming to you. Receive the gift of faith by grace. And today, believe. And that great contrast will happen for you right where you're sitting you need to hear more, we'd love to talk with you after the gathering and try to answer your questions. Maybe visit with somebody you came with or any leader here would love to talk with you. This is what grace is. Grace is the currency of Christianity. But grace is not just for the day one becomes a Christian. Grace is for every day. You don't just need grace to enter the, the door of faith. You need grace to live every day. The Christian life begins with grace, it continues with grace, and it will forever be wrapped in the loving grace of our good Father. You see, Christian, you're, you and I are called by God to obey Him, to give our lives away in service to others, to freely share our money and possessions, 
to wage war on sin, to persevere through every trial, to forsake every lesser joy for the greater joy of Christ. And all of that takes grace. All of that can't happen based on your own merit. All of that requires the power of God to meet our need. And if grace isn't moving you to that kind of life, then something is tragically wrong. A great pastor during World War II named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was was writing to a church that had been accustomed to grace that was less than grace. I love the way he puts this. This will be on the screen. He said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We're fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Costly grace is above all costly because it cost God the life of His Son. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay on our life, but delivered Him up for us. Friends, if if we think of grace as this is given to you so that you can continue to live life however you want, but your ticket is stamped and you'll have heaven when you die, then that's what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. So I'd ask, brothers and sisters, the same thing that dear brother was asking the church of his day. Are are you living in cheap grace or costly grace? The, The person who genuinely gets the message of grace understands that he is then set free from sin, but bound to a life of obedience to the God who bought him from that sin. God's grace is the power not only for entering a life of faith, but for now living a life of costly grace, costly faith every day. Paul, this author of Ephesians, also wrote another letter called 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, he talked about this ongoing life of grace that is needed, specifically in the context of hardship and trial. And although he doesn't specify exactly what his trial was, many people believe it was some physical trial, some physical hardship. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, meaning this trial, that it should leave me. Now, this isn't some trite way of saying, God, take this from me, God, take this from me, God, take this from me as though some demonstrative three-time cadence can cause some magical powers of God to remove your trial. That's not what he's saying. This is a Hebraic way of saying, I begged and begged and begged and begged God to remove this painful, horrible difficulty. Is there anything in your life like that?
God, I don't know that I can do another day unless you take this away. If you haven't known that experience yet, it's just because you're too young. Friends, we all get there eventually. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, do you have a category for that? For pleading with God to remove some trial and hardship. It not to be removed. And for you to find that God's grace is enough. God's grace is sufficient for you. I am uh, learning this in a, a very personable, personal way. And I'd like to take a moment to, to tell you about that. Uh, many of you know I've been uh, ill lately. Those of you that have been around a while, you're wondering why I use the word lately. The, the running joke around here is what will Chuck break next? Uh, we keep a, a chair on the stage because who knows why I'll need it next. Um, my entire life, I've been the guy when you go to the doctor, they say, hold on a second, and they go to get the medical student. And uh, I'm, I'm convinced the reason why doctors call their work practice is because of patients like me. But in March, I got pretty sick, uh, debilitated, in fact. Um, after some trips, came home on a Wednesday and Thursday taught seminary class. And by the end of that morning, I had become um, so dizzy that I, I could hardly sit up. And so I called Jill and said, come get me. And when we got home, I uh, couldn't think straight. My speech was slurry. Uh, laying down in bed with my eyes closed, the room was spinning. And so the next day we went to the doctor and um, I had a, a weird rash on my neck and a weird rash on my face and sores in my mouth. And uh, my joints felt like Someone had hacked at them with an axe. And um, over the next several days, I got worse and worse and worse and reached a point that it felt like someone had taken all of my insides and put them in a blender and then, and then poured them back into my body. Everything felt destroyed. And the doctors thought that I caught a virus on a mission trip and it would run its course 
But days turned into weeks, and as weeks inched into a month, uh, then the doctors began to think there might be something else going on. Frankly, I am a, um, a stubborn, uh, determined person. But really, for the first time in my life, I, I hit something that I couldn't just muscle through and just keep going. And um, a lot of days since March, I've been so fatigued that I get up for a couple of hours and then go back to bed. And um, I've, since March, finding myself sleeping more in a day than I usually would in four or five. It feels like lab rats have nothing on me because they have done... Um, Orifices I didn't know I had. They have checked. That wasn't in my notes. <laughs> um, there were weeks in March and April that uh, I was so dizzy that I couldn't uh, stand the, the music and the crowd. No offense, band. Um, but I would lay back behind that door until it was time to come out, come out and somehow get through preaching and then go back and lay back down. It was pathetic. But I've had all of these tests done and um, Tad and Gracie in many ways have held um, all the pieces of what happens around here together, so I'd thank them publicly. Good news is it seems that the doctors have found the cause. Um, I was recently diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called lupus. And frankly, lupus wasn't on my plan for 2017. I have heard of lupus, but never known anybody with it. And um, never had conceived that in some way all of these challenges that I've had physically for years are in some way connected. But it turns out they are, and that this... Um, autoimmune disease has been causing problems likely for a long time. If you're unfamiliar with it, autoimmune, the, lupus is an autoimmune disease that causes your body to declare a civil war. It um, creates inflammation and causes um, the body to fight itself. It is chronic, incurable, and can affect essentially any part of your body. Now, to be candid, waking up exhausted and hurting every morning is not fun. And having to limit good things in my calendar as a father and a husband and a pastor is like cutting my arm off. I want my life to count for Christ. I don't want to lay around in bed. I hope that God will give me many more decades as your pastor. The Newkirks aren't going anywhere. We love you, and I want to serve you as long as the Lord leaves me here. And the message that I can tell you now more than ever is that God's grace is sufficient for you. 
because I'm finding experientially in new ways. God's grace is sufficient for me. My family, I shed many tears over this. Um, I've had to hear my kids say things like, we want our old daddy back. Uh, it's scary to be sick. In some ways, it feels like somebody died, but nobody died, which is weird. But brothers and sisters, God's grace is enough for lupus. And God's grace is enough for you. His power is perfected when we are at our weakest. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Dad, would you come pray for us?